As you're taking your seats, you can open your Bibles to that passage Aaron just read. Looking this morning at Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. I don't know about you, but I love Sundays. I love Sunday morning. Sunday is probably my favorite day of the week. I get to see all of you, or most of all of you normally. I get to see and spend time with my gospel community on Sunday afternoon. I get to sing to Jesus. I get to preach. I love Sundays. And I'm eager to preach the gospel to you this morning. It was interesting this week, Stephen and I have, in our nightly devotions, have started reading through the book of Romans. And Paul opens the book of Romans by introducing it and sending a greeting and says to the church, uh, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He says, I thank God for you, that through Jesus, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He goes on to call them brothers. In other words, he's writing to a church, he's writing to a bunch of Christians, and he says in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul was eager to preach the gospel to the church. I am eager to preach, it's like Paul would say, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you this morning because I believe the gospel is not something that just saves you and then you move on from that and you follow these biblical principles. The gospel is a thing that as we move deeper into, we mature and grow to be more Christ-like. So I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm eager to sing the gospel. I'm eager to remember the gospel through communion this morning. We're looking at a passage this morning that is such a clear illustration and demonstration of the gospel, the, the Passover celebration, the Lord's Supper. We're looking how Jesus will reinterpret and redefine this meal in light of his death and resurrection from the grave. This is a passage that if you have grown up in church or you're familiar with the Bible or with church, you're like, yeah, I, I know this passage. The instructions on the Lord's Supper. He's going to say, this is my body. He's going to say, this is my cup. They drink together. I know this passage. But I pray that, that God would open your eyes and your heart this morning that you might understand through this passage the gospel more clearly. You might see Jesus' sacrifice, his atonement, his death on the cross more deeply and that through experiencing that, you would be transformed to be more like him. That's my prayer this morning as we look into this passage. The passage opens in verse 12. It says there, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you go and prepare, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now the feast, the, the festival of the unleavened bread and the Passover would start on the same day, and scholars, commentators, they think most likely this would have been Thursday, the day before Jesus was crucified. Both of these festivals were celebrating Jesus's, or God's sovereignty and providence and liberation. The, the Passover festival was a, a festival that was celebrated from uh, the book of Exodus. We see this in Exodus chapter 12. It's a story which reminds the people that they used to be enslaved by the Egyptians and that in a miraculous work of God, he saved them. He liberated them from bondage and from slavery. The people of Israel escaped from coming judgment and the wrath of God as the, the Lord was coming down and he was going to kill all firstborn sons. But the Lord gave special instructions to his people and said, if you sacrifice a lamb and you spread the blood on the doorposts, I will pass over your house. I will spare you. This is where we get the Passover festival, and the, past, the Jews would celebrate this Passover every year since, once a year. 
can imagine how long this was going on, this Passover festival. This was a big deal to them. And I was, when I was trying to think about what would be something similar, it's not very similar, but it's the closest thing I think that we can relate in our culture would be like Thanksgiving. It's something that happens every year. It's important. Um, people come together to remember and to give thanks. It, it might not be as, as clear as the Jews as they remembered the lamb passed, or the God, God passing over them by the blood of the lamb. We just remember um, from our forefathers thanking God for our, the harvest that wasn't destroyed, that we could survive here in America in 1621. But I think that would be the closest thing to Passover. So as you're thinking about that, just thinking about Passover, trying to put it in our context, I think Thanksgiving might be the best. In, um, in Passover, people would travel home to eat with their families. In fact, the Passover meal had to be eaten in Jerusalem. We looked at this last week. There would be a ton of pilgrims that were traveling to Jerusalem, just as in Thanksgiving, it's a time of remembrance, a time of celebration, a t- something that we would do since our childhood. And this is why the disciples are asking Jesus, where will you go prepare for us? Where will, you, where will we eat this Passover meal? Something that we've done since, we were, since we've been children. Something we've done every year. We see here that although they had spent time in Bethany, they returned to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast because the lamb had to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. And it says there in verse 13, he sent two of the disciples. Now from Luke chapter 22, we know that these two disciples were Peter and John. These were the two disciples. These were two of the disciples that were in Jesus' three, his inner circle, his, the three that he spent the most time with. These are the two that he sends ahead. And although I don't think this is a main point that Mark is trying to make, I think it's important that we remember that Jesus, this is how Jesus sends all of his disciples out in teams. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. This is, in fact, what he did earlier in the gospel in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. It says he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. They were to go preach. They were to cast out demons. They were to anoint the sick. Jesus sends his disciples out in teams. And as we read through the rest of the New Testament, we see as Jesus dies on the cross, he's resurrected. His disciples are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witness. They're sent out to go make disciples, to proclaim the gospel. They go in teams. Paul didn't go alone. He wasn't a lone wolf. He had a team with him. When you read through, the, when you read through Acts, when you read through his letters, he had teams. The churches were being planted in teams. This is important for us as we're a church plant, as we seek to make disciples, as we realize God has placed us here to be his witness. We go as teams. We are his witness. This should be our motive. This should be at the forefront of our minds as we're going to work, as we're interacting with our neighbors. And I don't know about you, but I need this reminder a lot. Because I can interact with my neighbors like I'm not sent there to be my witness. They're just the people that live next door to me. When I had a real job and I would, <laughs> when I worked at Les Schwab, I oftentimes did not have the mentality that God was sending me into Les Schwab to be his witness. Work to me was just something I had to do to pay the bills, something I had to do to eat. And let me just say, this is a terrible motive. Is it, is it godly? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can disagree with me on that. What is our motive for going to work? 
Yes, we are to work hard for the glory of the Lord because we ultimately are working for the Lord, but we are also his witness. God has also sent us there to be his witness. So that means, Jake, that God has placed you in Wonderful to be his witness. Kyle, he has placed you at QFC to be his witness. Aaron? He sent you in your neighborhood to be his witness. Jesus sends in teams. Do you have a team that's involved in your mission? Do you have a, a gospel community that is surrounding you in your mission, that is praying for you, that is encouraging you? Does your gospel community know the people in your life that he has sent you to? Jesus sends in teams, and he says to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. Now for us, that might not be that weird, a man carrying a jar of water, but in Jesus' time, that was pretty weird. Men didn't carry water. It was something primarily that women did. So they would recognize this guy. A guy carrying a, a jar of water, uh, you'll recognize this guy, you'll see him, you'll follow him, and he's going to lead you to this house. And when he enters it, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large room ready and furnished. There prepare for us. Now, unlike the way we celebrate Thanksgiving and the different traditions or little nuances or different foods that we have, I don't think all of our Thanksgiving meals are the exact same, right? Some people really like yams. Some people really like the sweet potatoes and the um, marshmallows that are mixed together in this disgusting sweet goop. <laughs> Usually it seems like one of the only things that is kind of common is turkey. But in regards to all the side dishes, those things kind of vary. Well, in, in the Passover meal, it was the same meal every time. There was certain elements that needed to be there every time. There was unleavened bread. There was uh, bitter herbs. There was four cups of wine. There was sauces, and there was the roasted lamb. When Jesus says, go and prepare, this is what he's talking about. Go prepare this. Go get a lamb. Sacrifice it at the temple. Start roasting it. Prepare the meal. Get the bread and the wine and the herbs together. So they go and prepare the room, and the disciples return. Six, in verse 16, it says, they set out and went to the city. They found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I love this verse. Because everything that Jesus says happens. There's no like mix-up. There's no, well, Jesus, you said this, but we really had to do this. I think what Mark is doing here is he's highlighting Jesus' sovereignty. The fact that Jesus is sovereign. Now, yes, it could have been that Jesus is just a master planner. He prearranged everything just to the right second so that as they see this man with the draw of water, they enter Jerusalem, they're going to follow him perfectly. That could have happened. But I think more specifically, Mark is highlighting his sovereignty. Because one of the things that I thought is, why didn't Jesus just send him to the house? He had to tell him to go find this guy carrying a jar of water, and he would follow them. It's kind of this, these little intricate details. I think it's highlighting the fact that Jesus is sovereign. Furthermore, the expression that in verse 14, when Jesus says, my guest room, the, the literal translations from the Greek could be translated, the one I have 
arranged for or even the one I have a divinely appointed for me. That's what that phrase can mean. It's highlighting Jesus' sovereign. He is in control of all things. Everything that happens, that Jesus says will happen, happens. He's in control of everything. Even in the midst of his betrayal, as we see later on in, in the coming verses, he knows that he's going to be betrayed. It doesn't call, like, catch him off guard. Like was he, when he's praying in the garden and Judas comes up and the guards and he's betrayed, he's like, where did this come from? What? I get betrayed? I think, I think we forget this. Jesus is completely sovereign. He knew it. He tells, he knows that it's going to be one of the 12. Mark shows that he's in control the whole way. He's even in control of his suffering. And we can be assured this morning that he's in control of our suffering. That he's in control of everything. How big is your view of Jesus? Do we really believe that Jesus is sovereign? That he's in control of everything? I don't a lot of times. Because what happens? I set this plan that is perfect, right? Just plan to the detail. And I say, God, look at this amazing plan that I've made. Come and bless me. And what I'm doing is I'm treating God kind of like a genie, right? You kind of exist to serve me. I have this great plan that I've made. Just come make it happen, God. So when this plan doesn't happen, which doesn't, rarely, and I think it's God's grace that it doesn't happen, he's showing me that he is in control. But oftentimes when it doesn't happen, I think, oh, God, are you even, do you love me? Are you good? Start to question him. Maybe I'm afraid of the unknown. But I want to say, friends, that Jesus can be trusted. He is completely sovereign. He is in control of everything. He is in control of all the details in the midst of suffering and trials. We don't have to be afraid. One of the things that I've found a lot of times is I make these plans and they don't happen, or even I experience suffering, or sickness, or feeling down. I oftentimes ask God, God, what, what, why? Why am I experiencing this? I thought you loved me. I thought you were good. What are you doing? Have you guys ever asked this question? Just me? Okay, thanks, Alec. <laughs> One of the things that a, a pastor friend of mine said uh, is oftentimes we ask the wrong question. The what's or the why's. We question God. We question our, our own character. I thought I was a good person. Why are these bad things happening? Instead, we need to ask this question, how is this making me more like Jesus? Because that's God's intent for our good, for our sanctification. If we really believe that Jesus is sovereign, even when good and bad things happen in our life, it will be for our joy, his purpose, his glory. Jesus is sovereign. We can trust that. Moving on to verse 17, it says, When it was evening, he came in to Jerusalem with the twelve, and they were reclining at table and eating. Now, this, is, again, is another difference in culture. We normally eat standing or sitting, normally at a higher table. But it was customary in, in formal eating in uh, Jesus' time that they would eat reclined. They would have low tables. They would be kind of laying down on an elbow. 
with their feet kind of behind them. I, I would get down and show you right now, but I don't know if it, you could see me laying down. Maybe I could. Yeah. So they would, <laughs> they would eat like this, something like this on a low table with their kind of feet back towards the wall, and it would, they would be very close to each other. It was very intimate. Now, you know, like, if you see kind of the, the famous paintings of the Last Supper, you know that that probably isn't that accurate, right? Because, because it shows them they're sitting at high tables. They've got these nice chairs. The room would have had couches and, and pillows that they would have laid on. They would have had a, a low table. They would have been reclining on couches. And as they're in this reclined state, they're eating together. It's a very intimate time around this table. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. The one who is eating with me. Now again, I think Mark is highlighting his sovereignty, but, but this is also, this would be a very kind of shocking statement in this moment. The statements here of the one who is eating with me and the one who dips into the cup with me, dips the bread into the bowl with me, they're intended to show kind of the heinousness, the treachery of Judas's crime. Because eating together in, in Jewish times and in this culture was one of the most meaningful, intimate ways that friends would interact. It was very meaningful, and, and few actions were more despicable than betraying a friend at or shortly after a meal. Betraying a friend after a meal was horrible in Jesus' time. I think in this moment, Jesus was, might have even been thinking about Psalm 41.9, which says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The one who is eating with me will betray me. Now, if you've been journeying with us through the gospel according to Mark, you know that Mark hasn't really portrayed and shown the disciples in the best light. Has he? They're oftentimes showing they don't get it. They're forgetful. They're slow. They're hard-hearted. This is one of the few instances, the rare occasions that I think Mark is showing, the disciples are starting to get it. It's, it's, it's showing their humility. In verse 19, they begin to be sorrowful, and they say to Jesus, one after another, is it I? Jesus, am I going to betray you? Is this a question that you've ever asked Jesus? Is it me? I think Mark shows this because he wants his readers, the hearers of this gospel who would have been facing persecution and trials, to ask themselves this same question. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, will I betray Jesus? And this is a question that we have to ask ourselves. Will I betray Jesus? How have I betrayed Jesus? If we have the mentality of, I'd never do that. Judas was such a loser. He was a horrible person. I could never do that. Be careful. We must never think that we are too strong, too mighty, too high to fall. I pray that God would keep us humble and dependent on him. Jesus says even further, it's one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written to him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. 
this is one of the many occasions, I think, in the scriptures that, that is highlighting Jesus' sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and human responsibility. Jesus knows that this, this betrayal, this act had been ordained and planned out long before. But he doesn't excuse Judas for his actions and his responsibility. This was prophesied, but it says, woe to that man. And when we hear Jesus say, it'd be better if that man were never been born, we think, I think at least, wow, Jesus, that's pretty strong. It'd be better if he was never born. But I think, oddly enough, this is actually Jesus' grace. This is Jesus' compassion. This is Jesus warning Judas. This is Jesus giving Judas an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to confess. This is what the warnings are, are to do, as we see this even in the rest of the New Testament. This is the same truth that our friends, our family members, our acquaintances, our coworkers, our neighbors need to hear if they do not treasure Christ, if they do not love him, if they're not in Christ, that if they are, are without Christ, it would be better if they were never born. Do we believe that? A life without Christ, it would be better for them if they were never born. Now, I might not recommend that kind of being your, your main door of evangelism with coworkers and neighbors. Hey, friend, you know if you don't have Jesus, it would be better if you're never born. But we have to know that this is the reality. This is the truth. And then Jesus starts talking through the Passover meal. He starts giving instructions. It says in verse 22, As he was eating, he took bread, and after breaking it, or after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now, if, if again, you're familiar with the story, you grew up in church, or you're familiar with communion, the Lord's Supper, you know that this is kind of common, this is kind of familiar to you. But for the disciples hearing this, this would have been revolutionary. This is my body. This is a revolutionary statement. This is not something that was normally said at Passover meals. It's really interesting, as I was studying this week about Passover and, and everything that went into the meal, all the significance behind it, and really the kind of uh, the radical, radicalness, is that a word? Sure. The radicalness of what Jesus says here in the Passover meal. Because for Generation after generation after generation who were celebrating this Passover meal, the Passover meal was celebrated the same way. And there were certain things that were said every time. It was a, it was a long meal. It, was, it started in the evening, and it went all the way to midnight. There were four cups of wine that were drank throughout this meal. It was, it was a long meal. I'm sure you people weren't just drinking four cups of wine and, and getting drunk. It was a long meal. It was a lot of food. The meal would start with the father of the Jewish household. He would gather everyone together, he would say a, a blessing, a prayer, and he would then start to lead and direct and guide every aspect of the meal and explain it as it went. He would be the, the, the leader of the meal and explain the spiritual significance of everything that they were doing throughout this meal. And I couldn't help but think as I was reading through this, how do I view meals? How do, do I lead meals? Or is eating to me just something that I have to do to get onto my next thing? I think God even has instilled in us a need to eat, 
a need for food as daily reminders of his providence and, and what he has done for us. And yet, for me, it's just like, oh, nachos, that sounds good. I'll eat that and get right back to work. Meals are great times to remind us that we are satisfied by God, that we need God, that he is the giver of all things. They're great times to celebrate God for his goodness, and yet so often I just, I don't do that. How do you view meals? Is it something that you have to do just for energy, something you have to prepare just so that your spouse isn't too grumpy? How do you view meals? Meals are great times to share God's goodness with others. If you're married, it's a great time to discuss what God has been teaching you, how His grace has been changing you, how He's proven His faithfulness today. If you have a family, meals are great times to to teach, to instruct, to remind of the gospel. Men, are we leading our families in this? Do you eat with your family? Do you lead and direct and explain what the food means and how God is the provider and sustainer of all things? Why not start? Let's do that. Because every year the father would, would gather the family together and he would explain the story of Exodus 12. How God saved them. How God redeemed them. And they would celebrate through this meal together. They would celebrate God's redemption the meal would include unleavened bread, which was to remind them about the freedom from Egyptian bondage. The bread was unleavened because they had to leave so quickly it didn't have time to rise. So they'd remember the haste that God delivered them from. The meal would also include bitter herbs. This would remind the Israelites of the suffering and the trials they experienced in Egypt. Of course, the, the main course of the meal would be the roasted lamb, which would remind them of the lamb, the blood of the lamb that was shed, that was sacrificed that was painted on the doorpost that saved them from the Lord killing their firstborn. And throughout the meal, as they would eat it in stages, and they would drink the cups of wine, they would sing songs together. Have you ever sung a song with your family at the dinner table? Yeah? A, a praise song? A song to Jesus? When I was reading this this week, I was like, why am I not doing this? I want it. That's such a great time to do it, isn't it? The whole family's together. We're celebrating God's goodness and we sing to Him for it. I don't think singing is just something that Christians are supposed to do on Sunday morning. That's probably why it's so, so weird for so many Christians on Sunday morning and, and why probably we ought to, maybe we don't really like to sing on Sunday morning. We just kind of stand there like this. Christians sing. We're supposed to sing together. Why don't we sing together as families? Why don't we try this tonight? Families, husbands, lead your families in a song tonight at dinner. Sing to Jesus together. Celebrate his goodness. So they were working through the meal, and, and Jesus had given a blessing, and there's kind of some debate on what cup Jesus would be saying here in, in verse 23. Was it the third cup? Was it the fourth cup? But anyways, he, he takes the cup, and we had given thanks to them. They all drank it, and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Just think about how radical this would be for the disciples. They'd grown up their whole life understanding that the bread, the cup, the herbs, the lamb, all represented and was celebratory of what happened at Passover. And Jesus, in this moment, is right now saying, all of that, what you used to do, 
It's about me. All of what this meal means ultimately is about my death on the cross, my body, my blood being shed for you. It's hard for us to imagine how radical that would be because we we didn't grow up celebrating the Passover meal every year and being reminded of what it meant, but this would have been radical. Jesus is redefining what Passover means. Jesus is showing his disciples that the Passover is all about him. The bread represents his body. The wine represents his blood that he's going to shed tomorrow, Friday, for the sins of many. Now, many people have pointed out here that Jesus doesn't mention a lamb. Mark doesn't mention a lamb. And you would think the main course of the Passover meal, what's going on here? Why isn't there a lamb? And I heard a pastor, he mentioned it like, he, he explained it like this. Jesus doesn't mention a lamb. There's not a lamb talked about in this Passover meal. There's not a lamb at the table because Jesus is at the table. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Don't you love that? Jesus is at the table. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It describes Jesus as our Passover lamb. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the Passover lamb whose blood alone will cover our sin. This is, in fact, what John the Baptist describes of Jesus as he sees him walking towards him. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb, and Jesus gives new meaning to the Passover celebration. This is why after Jesus, the church has celebrated the Passover meal, and they've, as it's redefined, calling it the Lord's Supper, communion. That they come together and they regularly celebrate Jesus' blood shed on the cross, Jesus' body broken on the cross for us. But it's such a greater celebration. Because Jesus' death secures a greater freedom. Not just freedom from Egyptian slavery, but freedom from sin, from Satan, and death. Jesus' death also covers a greater wrath, not just the death of the firstborn, but his judgment, his wrath being poured out on all people. Like God's judgment falling upon the land of Israel, God's judgment will fall on every human being on earth. It's not just going to be the land of Egypt. God's wrath must be poured out, and it will either be poured out on Jesus or on those outside of Jesus. Sin must be punished, but Jesus' blood, his death on the cross, the perfect lamb without blemish, dies in your place. The, the wrath of God will pass over you in Christ. This is the gospel. This is what became a centerpiece of worship for the early church. I, I think the early church, they came together every week and celebrated this. This is why we do have the Mountain Church every week. I'm more inclined to celebrate it every week. We need that reminder. It's the centerpiece of our worship together, the Lord's Supper. The reminder that Jesus' body was broken for us. Reminder through a meal. We need to remember Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Remember that it's all about Jesus and what he has done.
because this is the centerpiece of the Christian faith, isn't it? It's all about Jesus. It's about what he has done. This is the gospel. It's good news that has already happened. It's not anything that you do. It's what Christ has done. It's what's fundamentally different from every other religion. Crazy how many people think that Christianity is just like another religion. It's completely different. Completely different. It's good news. It's not following rules. It's not trying really hard to be a good person. It's trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross. Trusting in what he has done. That we are saved by grace through faith and his substitutionary atonement. Him being a sacrifice for us on the cross. Do we believe this? Do you believe that? I think many of us do. And a lot have have believed in this. But it's very easy for us just to believe with a head knowledge or just to get the gospel intellectually and have it not kind of transform every aspect of our life. Or is that just me? I think a lot of us in here, we believe the gospel intellectually, but it's not transforming the way that we are living. Tim Keller, Tim Keller says it like this in the introduction to his book, The Prodigal God. Many lifelong Christian believers feel they understand the basics of the Christian faith quite well, and they don't think they need a primer, a reminder of the gospel. He says, nevertheless, one of the signs that you may not grasp the unique, radical nature of the gospel is that you are certain that you do. In other words, we never move on from the gospel. In other words, no one believes the gospel perfectly at all times. You don't. I don't. The reality is because criticism can crush me. I put my hope and my trust and my identity in my performance at times. I don't believe Jesus approves of me perfectly, so I look forward in others. So when I'm not recognized or approved or affirmed, I lose my joy. What are some ways that you don't believe the gospel? Is the gospel transforming you? Another way that I disbelieve the gospel, I'm just going to keep telling you my sins. Another way I believe I disbelieve the gospel is I don't really believe it's good news. I believe it's okay news. I believe it's, it's just news. It's okay. I'm not continually looking for ways to share it or apply it to my life. I'm not motivated by it. One of the ways that I, I disbelieve the gospel is in my patience with Stephanie, my lack of service towards her, my lack of grace towards her. She's something that offends me, that hurts me, and I immediately don't have grace on her. I, I lash out against her. How is the gospel transforming you? Just think about that this week. Write it down. If you journal, put it in your phone, tweet it, Instagram it, how is the gospel transforming you? How are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you becoming more patient, more loving, more forgiving, more peaceable, more truthful, more gentle, more disciplined, more generous, more evangelistic? This is why I, I try to preach the gospel every, every week. 
why we remember the Lord's Supper every week. It's why we sing the gospel every week. We need to be reminded continually because we have false beliefs. We have outright lies that we believe. We can fall into this trap that I do often. If you've grown up in church or you have church experiences, this is a trap that you can fall in as well. Well, if I just read my Bible, if I just gather with the church weekly, if I try really hard, God's going to bless me. God owes me. Then we know what happens when bad things happen. It goes wrong. You question that. You question God's goodness. Is he really good? Maybe I'm not a good person. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God really isn't that good. Are, the, are these thoughts that have come through your mind? Maybe just now it's being revealed to you. Yeah, I'm pretty religious. I work hard for God. I perform for God. So, yep. He owes me. He needs to bless me. We need to be reminded because we are so quick to put our identity in our performance or what we do and not in what Christ has done. We need to be reminded of what the Lord's Supper means to drive the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts so that we can experience joy and satisfaction in Christ. What I love about the Lord's Supper, too, is it anticipates the soon return of Christ and the final supper. That's what I think verse 25 is getting at. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Again, showing Jesus' sovereignty. My death, my betrayal is not going to hold me back. Nothing is going to frustrate my plans. Nothing is going to stop me from celebrating the future kingdom of God. And just as the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 secured God's people's freedom and liberation from Pharaoh and delivery into the promised land, Jesus' death on the cross as our Passover lamb secures our ultimate promised land. The land that God is remaking the, the place that he has prepared for us to be with him forever in perfect fellowship. A land of no death, a land of no sin, a land of no pain, a land of no suffering. This verse anticipates Jesus drinking the cup anew with his redeemed people, his restored community, the church. So that when we come to the Lord's Supper, this is what we anticipate, this is what we long for. I can't wait to drink, to eat the Supper of the Lamb, to be with him forever. I love food so much. It's going to be so good in heaven. I can't wait to feast with Jesus. This is what John has a vision of. He recorded in Revelation 19, 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. All who belong to God will celebrate this marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you know this Lamb? Does His blood cover you? Do you trust in his blood? Do you set your hope on Jesus Christ and his word and his work? Do you believe that his sovereign purposes are for your joy and for his glory? Do you have any questions about anything that I talked about this morning or was said? Any questions on the passage? I'd love to talk with you. I'd, there's some connection cards here on the, the bar. If you want to fill one of those out and, and get together or have a question, I'd love to do that with you. 
This is what it's all about here. This is what we're about to celebrate right now as we transition to a time of, of the Lord's Supper of communion. We remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, how his blood has covered our sins. We remember that every week. But we are also anticipating this, this one day, his soon return, this marriage supper of the Lamb where we will be with Christ forever. Practicing one of the implications of this, looking forward and longing for Jesus' coming, is that we don't put our trust and our hope in the things of this earth, in temporary things, temporary treasures, temporary satisfactions. We put our hope in Christ. So now as we transition to a time where we remember Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, as we thank him for what he has done, as we give thanks for what he has done, and as we anticipate his coming return, I ask that you would take some time to think about this passage. Think about how the gospel is transforming you. Think about what you're putting your identity and your hope and your purpose in. Think about what you're banking on. Think about your view of Jesus and his power and his sovereignty. The reality that he's in control of everything. Then I ask that you come at your own pace and we sing together, we celebrate. This is what Sundays are, celebrations of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church that you have built, that you are building. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that you have placed in my life that I need. I need to be reminded of the gospel, Lord. I'm so prone to wander, so idolatrous. My heart is an idol factory, continually producing things that lead me away from hope and trust and identity in you. I pray now, Father, that you would send your spirit to convict and encourage and strengthen us, that you would equip us to be more like you, that through the gospel we would mature, that even now you would shine a light into the darkness of our hearts, that, that, that we are not treasuring you, we are not loving you, we are not longing for you, we are not working out of that love, but we are working for it or trying to earn that somehow through our duties, or our acts, or our good work, or our hard work. Father, if it, if it takes suffering, if it takes persecution, would you humble us? Would you take anything out of our life that we're putting our identity in, that it might solely be placed in you? And Father, out of this identity, would it just overflow with joy and good works? Would it overflow in and longing to talk about you? Would it overflow in serving others and being patient with others and forgiving others and being gracious and being generous? Father, we want to be more like your son, Jesus. Would you help us to grow and transform as your spirit works in us? Father, we love you. We want to sing to you now. We want to give you our hearts. We want to praise you. I, I pray that this time of singing would not just be a time of once every week, but it would just be the time where we all sing together as we've been singing individually and as families and as communities throughout the week. Would our joy overflow in happiness and delight as people would see the uniqueness, the radical, uh, the radicalness of what you have made us and the life that you offer and the joy that you bring. 
I love you, Father. I, I pray that uh, this time will be honoring of you. In your son's name I pray, amen.